Hey there, how's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where a bunch of us content creators come together and talk about what we've played recently. And this episode is a special on-location episode where I am currently sitting on the outdoor rooftop patio of Hotel Z in Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. Beautiful! Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. And uh, we are on holidays and I brought my microphone and I thought we might as well put something together. So on this episode, we have the Meeple and the Moose, the Tabletop Bellhop, Mozart Games, Dice and Dragons, the Meeple Dungeon, and Cardboard Conjecture. And of course, as always, please take the time to check out the links to the What You've Been Playing Wednesday cast in the show notes. And this will be a unmusicked transition episode. So I apologize that we have no groovy tunes in between the segments. Uh, you know, sorry, eh? Hello, my name is Alex, and I write board game reviews over at MeepleInTheMoose.com, and I'm here to talk to you today about the games I played this week for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. This week, the group was keen on returning to Viticulture World, so we tackled the European continent scenario and dealt with the great wine blight of Phylloxera. Viticulture World is the cooperative expansion to Stolmeyer's classic game, Viticulture. If you've never played Viticulture, it's a worker placement game set in Tuscany. Each player is trying to build a wine farm, plant and harvest grapes, and turn grapes into wine, and sell the wine for victory points. This expansion turns a cooperative game on its head by forcing players to work together. To win Viticultural World, all players must meet or exceed 25 points and have collectively accumulated 10 influence points by the end of the sixth year. The European event cards provided grants, making it easier and cheaper to build buildings in one year, and then the next year made it more expensive to plant vines. At one point, the local government set a legal definition of wine, which reduced the quality of wine we produced, but also generated us more money and points in the end. Also unique to the European scenario was the fact that each player had their own personal objectives to achieve. These events are what make the game interesting and different from play to play. My objectives had nothing to do with grapes or wine, so I focused on generating money and erecting buildings. By the end of the game, I had only fulfilled a single wine order. All of my other points came from buildings, trades, and other sources. I was also the first player to cross the 25-point threshold, if only I could do so well during the competitive game. In the final two rounds of Viticulture World, I had pretty much done everything I needed to do, and was only 5 points away from the 25 points I needed, but I knew I would be getting 3 points from other people's actions and I just needed to do a single trade action to get my final 2 points. At the start of the 5th round, we still needed 4 more influence points however, so I spent the whole last 2 rounds giving tours to generate money and then buying those 4 influence points with the money I generated. At the end of the game, someone else had managed to hit 30 points to earn another influence point and we earned an additional influence point via the yearly event, effectively turning my entire final round pointless. This begs the question, what should you do if you manage to complete your objectives by round 5? You're kind of left to just mill about trying not to get in the other player's way as they continue to earn points for themselves. Should you start making up your own objectives, try to see how far you can exceed the victory point thresholds? I'm a little sour that 20% of my gameplay was kind of wasted, that wasn't fun or interesting for me as I just waited for everybody else to catch up. But in the end, we won the scenario, and I guess teamwork is the point of the game. Viticultural World is still a great co-op or collaboration game. During our game, one person proudly proclaimed that this was his favorite cooperative game of all time. Spoiler alert, it wasn't me. 
My favorite co-op game is Burgle Bros. It's always a good feeling when you see one of your friends so enamored with the game, and I'm still excited to explore the other event decks to see what surprises are in store. This week I also played Brian Baru, High King of Ireland by designer Pierre Sylvester. Brian Baru tasks players with uniting Ireland by utilizing a unique trick-taking mechanism to run this area majority game. Every round starts with a draft, doling out the cards between players. Then, turn by turn, the lead player places a focus token on one city and places a card matching the color of that location. All other players have to play a card, but unlike many other trick-taking games, they do not have to follow the suit. After everyone has played a card, players resolve the actions on the card they played in ascending order. Everyone who quote-unquote lost the trick takes one of the actions from the bottom of their card, letting them place influence on a marriage track, repel invading, invading Vikings, or gain influence in the church. The player who played the highest card of the color matching the city wins the trick and gets to take the top row action instead, which always includes taking that focus token into their supply and then placing one of their influence discs onto the board. Brian Baru was a very interesting take in Area Majority, which is a genre of games I generally don't like. I did enjoy some of the choices from playing a low-ish card and hoping that you'll win the trick, but also being prepared for the likely event that someone else will take the trick from you. It also seems to really benefit players who get the early majorities in the provinces, as players who want to wrestle control from you will need to exceed, will need to exceed your influence, and the opportunity to place influence is pretty limited. I look forward to playing this game some more to see if my complaints are valid, but Maybe it's better if you, maybe the game feels way better if you're really good at the game or if everyone around you knows what they're doing. Um, but it definitely feels like the kind of area majority game where you cannot be everywhere at once. And that's kind of at odds with one of the scoring mechanisms where you get points based on how many provinces you're in. I think gerrymandering is the answer here. And that's all I played this week. If you'd like to read more about my board game reviews, you can find them over at meeplelandthemoose.com, on Instagram at meeplelandthemoose, or on Twitter at moosemeeple. Have a happy Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop segment of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, working with you to make your game nights better. Now, I spent most of last week up north with the family, staying at my uncle's farm in Campbellford, Ontario. While most of the time was spent visiting with family, exploring the area, and enjoying the sights, I did convince the family to sit down to play two games. The first was a seven-player game of Telestrations that we somehow convinced my non-gaming, game-loving mom and uncle to take part in. This was a ton of fun with everyone laughing so hard that it hurt. This was a great example of just how great that game is for both gamers and non-gamers alike, and how little actual drawing skill matters in regards to having fun while playing Telestrations. I'm pretty sure every family member that was present will be talking about four-legged ducks for a long time coming. The second game I taught was Bean, or Bonanza, which I'm sad to say didn't go over quite as well as Telestrations. What that ended up being is a good reminder for me that games that seem very simple and basic to long-time experienced hobby gamers can actually be quite confusing and overwhelming to non-gamers. That said, the card game fans at the table, including my aunt, really loved it, and because of that I do plan to bring it back for our next trip up north. But that time, I'll make sure it's only card game players sitting down to play. This isn't going to be one for the non-gamers. Now, while in Campbellford, we did find some cool antique shops that had a large amount of classic role-playing game stuff, including some old Warhammer books too. But the um, Yellow Spine AD&D books, 
um, in print in in pretty much mint condition. And I've got to admit that was tempting. Those were nice quality books, and they included some that I don't actually own myself. Uh, there was also a copy of the second uh, Gamma World box set from TSR, though it was missing the map. And I was really tempted to bring those home, but sadly for me, uh, the antique shop seemed to know what they had and what it was worth, so it was a little out of our price. Now, I did manage to find a copy of Point Salad at a very cool corner bookstore, which did make it home with us. So look for an unboxing video for that one in the coming weeks. Well, that's it for the gaming-related stuff I did this past week. Remember, you can watch us record the next episode of the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, live on Twitch, twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop. Now, tonight, I'm going to be asking Sean all about Pandora Total Destruction a new overpowered supers role-playing game from Canadian designer Todd Crapper. After which, we'll be reviewing Revolution of 1828 from Stefan Feld, and it would be cool if you can join us for that live recording. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I am Mo Tuzno. Good day, and game on. Hey there, this is Chris Morris from Mozart Games, once again for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. You can find me on Twitter as SpiderMo, that's spider with a Y, if you want to give me a follow, for my board game thoughts, some game design challenges, and just a bunch of random thoughts and opinions. This week, I want to jump into my Wayback Machine and talk about a game that I recently got to the table again, but was initially published back in 2011 by Fantasy Flight Games. And that game is Blood Bowl team manager. This is a re-implementation of the Games Workshop tabletop classic Blood Bowl that plays in a fraction of the time and, in can, and can incorporate two to four players. Now for those of you not familiar with Blood Bowl, it's set in Games Workshop's fantasy world where teams of elves, dwarves, humans, or orcs will battle it out on a football-style pitch. It's much like American football, but with a lot more blood and guts on the field by halftime. In the card game, you'll choose one of the six teams included in the base game box and play through a series of highlights over the course of five seasons to see who can accumulate the most fans. Each of the six teams plays very differently, with Skaven being super fast, Orcs being super violent, and humans being just a mix of everything, as humans often are in these types of games. In a round, players will each draw six cards from their team deck and one at a time commit a player to one of the highlights that are dealt out onto the table. Each highlight will have rewards for those teams competing, as well as an additional reward for whichever team accumulates the most star power at it, thus winning the highlight. Each player will have a special ability or skill that's used when they are committed to the highlight. Abilities such as passing will allow you to take the ball, which grant you additional star power if you control it at the end of the round. Sprinting allows you to cycle through your deck, tossing out cards that aren't as useful for those that you may want more. Tackling allows you to roll dice and, hopefully, knock out an opponent's player, thus reducing their star power. But if you roll poorly, you may end up knocking out your own player instead. All of these abilities are optional, and you may choose whether to activate them or not if they don't help you at the time. The only one of the abilities that isn't optional is cheating, where you will take a random token from a pool and place it face down on your player that has that skill. At the end of the round, all cheating tokens are revealed, and they may increase your star power, grant you additional fans, or you could have actually been caught cheating by the corrupt ref 
and your player is tossed out of the match entirely. Rewards that are gained will give you team upgrade cards that will grant you additional abilities in future rounds, fans that can win you the game outright, or star players, which means that you'll draw cards from a unique deck giving you access to better players, which will give you an advantage in future matches as well. Star players are hotly contested in the early rounds, but become less valuable as the game proceeds, as you may not ever be able to use them if you get them too late. Star players also usually have a higher star power rating, but will also have multiple special abilities, giving you access to all kinds of shenanigans that will mess with your opponent's plans. There's nothing quite like seeing the look on your opponent's face as you pummel their players to the ground repeatedly with a giant steamroller hell-bent on knocking everyone down on the opposite side of the pitch. There's also special rules that come into play each round, changing your tactics if the pitch happens to be soggy, or if you have a ref who actually wants to enforce the rules of the game that round. Those tournaments that crop up occasionally, granting larger rewards for the player who wins it, but it may mean that you have to sacrifice playing to other highlights by doing so. Whoever ends up collecting the most fans after a total of five rounds is declared the winner, and all the other teams will head home with their heads hanging in shame. At least, that's if they still have their heads attached to their bodies by the end of the tournaments. The base game offers a ton of replayability, but there's also two expansions that came out that each include three more teams, doubling the variability of the teams that you can use. The Goblin team adds a ton of chaos to the game, as they can add additional players to matchups, flooding the highlights with their players. And they can also toss balls out of a highlight completely and add it to another one, so that there's now two in play. The undead can resurrect themselves if they get knocked down, and can sometimes use abilities once they've been tackled by an opponent. And Nurgle can disease their opponents, making them weaker when determining your final star power at highlights. The expansions also add a bunch of new things like enchanted balls that will give the ball carrier new abilities, or stadiums that change how you add players to specific highlights entirely. There's also penalty cards that can be played that offer permanent disadvantages to opponents, as well as more tournaments to make things even more unpredictable. In all, each expansion really changes things up a lot and can lead to even more chaos than the base game on its own. If you've ever wanted to try Blood Bowl, but don't have either A, the patience to assemble and paint a team, or B, a couple of hours to play a single match against one opponent, then Blood Bowl Team Manager may just be the thing that you're looking for. I hadn't played it in years, but got it to the table recently, and it was such a hit that one of the players was instantly shopping on Amazon for a used copy that he could add to his collection. Because the game is out of print, it's hard to track down, but not impossible, and I can definitely say it is well worth it if you're looking for a football-type game with a bit of a twist. Thank you for listening to my thoughts this week. Once again, I am Chris Morris, and you can find me on Twitter as SpiderMo if you'd like to give me a follow for some more insights and my gaming preferences. Happy gaming, everyone, and may all your dice rolls be critical successes. What up, gamers? I'm Jason, one half of Dice and Dragons. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram at Dice and Dragons, and on Twitter at Dice and Dragon. And today is What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. Julie and I have been playing Horizon Zero Dawn by Steamforge Games, designed by Sherwin Matthews. Now this was a big Kickstarter game with lots of exclusives, lots of expansions, and it was a game that I was very interested in picking up, uh, but because of the cost at the time, I didn't get it, and Steamforge Games was kind enough to send us this review copy, and I've been really looking forward to trying it out, and we finally got it to the table uh, this past week. 
The game is for one to four players, and Board Game Geek uh, does suggest that the game is best at three to four players. I do have to agree with this as it is a semi-cooperative game, and one of the issues that we found with the game is playing at one to two players, which is our preferred player count for the moment. Uh, we don't get together as a group too much uh, right now. We're just all very busy. The semi-co-op nature didn't work very well in the favor of the game because fighting one of the big bosses, helping out the other player, essentially means that you're hindering yourself. Uh, if you do half the damage to one of the enemies, then the other player can pretty much clean them up, get all the victory points, and win the game. The game does have a cooperative variant that is in the back of the book. It changes a few things up and excludes uh, one of the decks. If you're going to be playing the game at two players, I would highly recommend playing it as a cooperative. Give the semi-co-op a try, but it definitely feels like it uh, doesn't work. The game does adapt the video game mechanics uh, to the tabletop very well. In terms of the uh, item decks, after every encounter you can buy new items. They are random. Uh, that's a good and a bad thing, something that Julie and I will elaborate more in our review uh, of the game that will be coming out uh, tomorrow. Also, you can target some components to weaken enemies, and while that works as well, uh, one of the things that we found uh, just playing the game, sometimes you rather just smash the enemy with a whole lot of damage, try to one-shot them or take them out in two hits, and taking out the components is not necessarily the most efficient way to do that, especially when you're playing a cooperative game uh, and glory points don't matter as much, uh, demolishing the components is not necessarily as useful. It plays well for the semi-cooperative aspect of the game because if you can't take out an enemy, you can lower the damage you're going to be doing by taking out the component uh, because you only deal damage based on what the component's value, uh, sorry, damage value is, but you'll also gain a glory point. So that's a great way to weaken an enemy without necessarily helping out the other hunters because everyone wants to be the best hunter. So it works well. It's a good mechanic but it didn't actually didn't actually come into come to fruition the way I expected it uh, and that's where I'm going to leave it for now on that uh, subject uh, the miniatures are great uh, usually I do complain about uh, board game uh, images being used uh, in the game because of the graphics for Horizon Zero Dawn and the fact that you're not using a ton of uh, the imagery or using just primarily character shots it works well makes you feel like you are playing the game but it also looks good on the tabletop because it's just like an armor picture, picture of the enemies. I'm going to compare that to Bloodborne, the board game, where the graphics weren't nearly as good as Horizon Zero Dawn. I found that Bloodborne really kind of took me out of the game world, whereas this just, it works. So not good, not bad. But the miniatures, the details, especially on all the enemies, is very good. I would have liked to see some more details on the heroes. They're a little bit smaller. I get it because you're fighting big, large machines. But it is a little bit disappointing when you see them in scale. When it comes to the rulebook, the game was overall easy to learn. There was a few things that were missing, so we did refer to some how-to-play videos. But overall, I can't say that it was overly complicated. The flow of the game is fairly smooth. I just would have liked to see the rulebook cleaned up a little bit in terms of some sequencing and just explaining how some of the behavior cards work a little bit better. So those are my thoughts right now on Horizon Zero Dawn. You'll be able to hear Julie and I's full review coming out tomorrow, so make sure that you check us out. With that being said, don't forget, keep playing games. Hello everybody, it's Rob and Anna Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello! 
And we are back again recording for the What You Been Playing Wednesdays podcast. This week we have one game to talk about. What game is that, Anna-Marie? That game is Taco Hat Cake Gift Pizza, designed by Dave Campbell II, art by Simon Douchy, and published by Blue Orange. Yes, Taco Hat Cake Gift Pizza is this card game. And we... Uh, we were at our family reunion all last week and we played this game all over the place at that reunion. With all groups of people. We played it with kids. We played it with um, adults. It was a ton of fun. It was super popular. We brought it. We had, we brought our copy and then we brought a copy that was bought at an auction. And yeah, that our copy was mangled. Oh yeah. Played so much (laughs) that we have to basically go get it. Well loved in, in one week. But yeah. So what is this game? Um, it's a re-implementation. Yeah, because uh, these, the original is... Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza. <laughs> Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza. And this one is Taco Hat Cake, Cake Gift, Gift Pizza. pizza. <laughs> um, I don't know if there's any differences between them other than the name. I don't think so. I think they probably have a few different mythical or like um, special cards. Right, because there's I, like gophers and Yeah, I feel like this is the... Um, this It's the same idea. Yeah, but so this game... <sighs> It's so simple. Uh, what it is, is you have a deck of cards, and on these cards are going to be tacos, hats, cakes, gifts, and pizzas, in little cartoony uh, versions of these things, like a like a piece of pizza with a smiley face, but it's kind of rainbow-colored. Or Well, they'll make, because, yeah, they'll make the taco with a bow on it look like a present, like a gift. Right. Or they'll make the party hat look like a taco. So they're or... all they're all kind of similar looking, but and that's the whole point of this. Because what, what you do in this game is you take a card off the top of the deck, you flip it forward, you slap it down, and you say, you start the round by saying taco. Yeah. And then you look to see, everyone's going to see what the card is as you flip it over to see what's on that. And if it's a taco, you have to be the first to grab the card. Well, you well, don't grab it. You no, just you, you have to be the kind of like not snap. last. You put your hand on it. Yeah, but you want to be not last. You yes. don't have to be first, but you don't want to be last. <laughs> yeah. And so if it was a taco, and I said taco, and we all slap our hands down, it whoever was last takes a card and just puts it at the bottom of their deck. Yeah. So the whole point of this is to shed your your cards. Like you want to yeah, have get rid no of your cards because you deal the whole. Um, you you deal out one, right? the whole deck as long as it's even. Right. If yeah. they're like extra cards, you just put them aside. Sure. Everybody starts so everyone with the has same amount. Even set yeah. of cards, and then you go around the table doing that. So every round starts with the first person saying taco, and then they'll, they'll throw down a card, and it maybe it's a cake, and then yes. no one grabs it, and then the next person says hat and puts down a card, and maybe it'll be a taco, and then the next person <laughs> put, says cake and throws down a card. Maybe it's a cake. And then everyone slaps their hand yeah. down. Whoever was last ends up taking the card. And you start getting this. You have to get a rhythm going pretty good. It was funny watching some of the younger kids when they would take it and play it. They would be pausing and like really thinking like taco. Yeah. <laughs> and then after the taco, there'd be a really long pause. Hat. Yeah, because they're <laughs> all trying to concentrate so hard. But then with the adults, you get into the groove. It's like taco, hat. <clears throat> cake yeah gift pizza and it's so funny they they have these three other cards they're kind of special ones in there right so there's a, a monkey and a, a unicorn, unicorn and, and a gopher no it's not a gopher or, it's okay it, we'll cut we'll think of it 
but they're you have to do a little action. So like with a monkey, you have to you still have to put your one hand on the card on the deck, but the other hand you're patting your head. Right. And then the unicorn you're putting. Oh, it was a ninja. Um, oh, the the ninja. unicorn you're putting your like a finger like a unicorn horn. Yeah. And then the ninja you're making like a hiya kind of um, you know gesture. Yes. And so you have to do that while you're. Um, slamming your other hand on the deck and it's pretty funny because i know my one cousin every single one of those special cards just came with the sound effect of whoo <laughs> yeah. and so <laughs> you couldn't remember what you were doing but you knew it was going to be accompanied with a whoo <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it was pretty fun it is a great game it's and if um and when a round is so if someone screws up um, then the round starts again too. So it's not. Always... Oh yeah. As soon as, as soon as the cards get taken, um, you start at taco. Yes. So you could be doing taco, taco for taco, quite a taco. while. <laughs> keep screwing up. I screwed up all the time. Oh yeah. I'm horrible at this game, but yeah, we really did enjoy it. And this was a huge, um, success for us at the family reunion. People loved it. And even, yeah, everyone of all ages yeah. was playing it. It was really, really good. So we do highly recommend this one. This one you can find at pretty much any of your local stores. Um, and it's in like that $15 range, I think. It's not yeah, very expensive. 15 to 20 bucks. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, it's totally worth your time. It's nice, a good, fun light, game. fun, good, good to take to the beach kind of game. Yeah. And if it gets ruined, well, you just go get another one. Like it's ours. Not, yeah. <laughs> ours is bent, sticky, wet. Yeah, like just chewed up. It's just kids it's taking destroyed. it, having like Doritos while they're yeah. playing yeah. things that would normally just make me so, cringe. It lasted one <laughs> I was week. Like, so. Okay, you guys just go play. I'm not gonna watch. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll go get a new one. But we do highly recommend Taco Hat Cake Gift Pizza, um, just for a fun, silly game. Fun, so. silly game. Yeah. But I think that's it for this week. So we will see you next week. Cheers. See ya. Hey there, Norm here from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And uh, what have I played recently? Well, kind of a, uh, uh, you know, previous week and this week combination. I had um, uh, the opportunity to, uh, two weeks ago, to play a game off my shelf of shame, and that was Founders of Gloomhaven. And I believe last week that uh, Board on the Air talked about it. But uh, I also, after that, um, with, with the rule set fresh in my head, because there's quite a cognitive load when it comes to the um, familiarities with the, of the rule set. And uh, so I played a solo version and very different games, absolutely very different games, but kind of similar in a sense that um, it is the concept of uh, well, first of all, Founders of Gloomhaven, Gloomhaven is not Gloomhaven, the skirmish game. This is, you know, I've, I've heard people uh, make comparisons to the Great Zimbabwe in regards to uh, you're trying to civilization build or society build. And uh, you need to have resources connected to upgrades and upgrades connected to larger scope uh, projects. And uh, th that's the similar, I would say, you know, view from 30,000 feet of both games. In, in Founders of Gloomhaven, um, it's set on the world building that, uh, that was created of Gloomhaven, but kind of the rewind of, well, we know Gloomhaven, but how did Gloomhaven become to be? And this is a game where each person is trying to 
win by victory points, of course, and the victory points are your contributions to the resource infrastructure and building of certain specialty buildings, uh, certain upgrades, the connectivity, the borrowing of resources from other people, and making sure that these routes, the, the interconnectivity of these routes uh, is well-planned and not, um, let's say, hijacked. Because <laughs> in, the, in the game that we had with four players, uh, we, or three players, I believe, we, um, w there was this competition of not declaring what you're trying to keep secret, what you're trying to develop um, in a solo play, I mean, short of, of, you know, one half of my brain not talking to the other half, I know what's going on and it's a matter of me trying to be as efficient as I can. You know, it's this, this is one of those games where the, uh, the, the understanding of the rule set is, is required in order to have fluency in the game. It's not one of those kind of, on your turn, you have three things to do. No, no, not at all. There is layers and layers of planning that go into this in, in, the, in both versions of the game. In the solo game, there's less uh, um, concealment of your objectives because, as I said, nobody's trying to swoop in and, and you know, take over some of your routes or reroute or put a building in the, in the way of what you're trying to uh, develop. And yeah, I, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, it was, it, to be absolutely honest, uh, it, the founders was on my shelf of shame, but it was also on my trade pile because it was one of those games where I had given it a try, oh man, about a couple of years ago. And the, my brain was just not ready to absorb and seminar class the rule set in order to play the game and the setup i mean it's got a lot of components it's quite fiddly in in the nature of its setup but that being said sometimes those are the the, the best experienced games uh that you can play and uh yeah it's coming off the trade pile because i've got a little bit more to explore with this and uh, i'm glad that jordan did pick this for his gamers garage selection and uh yeah so i'm going to continue exploring Founders of Gloomhaven by Cephalofair Games and, uh, and Isaac. Well done, well done. Uh, that being said, this is a very short episode. Uh, we'll call it the, the Cardboard Conjecture on Location in Kelowna episode. And uh, short and sweet. That being said, I, I think I repeated myself there. Uh, <laughs> keep your stick on the ice or on Lake Okanagan and take care out there, hey? Eh?